0: I hear of Sherlock everywhere. Celebrates the 125th birthday of an iconic Sherlock Holmes.
1: Oh, Watson, the needle, very effective, my dear
2: Watson. Elementary, my dear Holmes. This is the voice you have learned to fear. This is the voice of terror. The needle to the last. Hey, Holmes. The man who had it didn't know he had it. Come in, Watson. My dear fellow, I'm glad to find you. In. There's your killer. Oh, me, child. I should have
3: prevented
2: this nonsense, my dear chap. You really don't think possible. Am I likely to forget the Oxton Creeper? Oxton Creeper? Oxton Horror, I called him. Oh, we could knock the wall down for you. do well, you, you don't realize, Mr. Stride, they're desperate. They stop
1: at nothing, and they've got Dr. Watson. To walk together through the gates of eternity, and the happened. a charming picture that would make. This wouldn't do it. And my relative, it might be worth it. I pay sufficient credit to your good taste to take the beautiful for diamonds gone, gone? Piano color. you've solved it thank you
3: support for this episode of i hear of sherlock everywhere is made possible by the wessex press the premier publisher of books about sherlock holmes and his world find them online
0: at wessexpress.com and sherlock holmes and the cryptic clues a grave undertaking by michael mcclure And
3: the Baker Street Journal, the leading publication of Sherlockian scholarship since 1946.
0: Subscriptions available at bakerstreetjournal.com. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 122. Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce.
2: I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere
0: since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective.
2: I've heard of you before. Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in
1: office.
0: <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So, junior hosts Scott Monty and Burke Walder as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You
1: couldn't have come in a better time.
0: Thank you, thank you for that introduction. Wow, this is going to be quite a time today. Here on. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And boy, oh boy, do we have some fun in store. We have an episode ahead of us that folks have been asking for, for a long time.
3: Oh, I'm really excited. This is something we've talked about for a long time and wanted to do for a long time. And the calendar tells us it's so appropriate. Yes. because, as uh, as you realize, it's someone's
0: birthday. Yes. Happy birthday, Bert. Oh, oh <laughs> thank no. Thank <laughs> you. I'm
3: only 125 years old. Oh, no, no. That's uh, Philip St. John Basil Rathbone is 125 on June 25th. Is that his birthday?
0: June 13th, just two days June. ago. Oh, dear. Yes. June 13th. I know. Now you're going to have to send him an apology. A sorry, oh. I missed your birthday card. Yeah, my goodness I, you never i never know what to get somebody you know oddly
3: enough when you go to the hallmark store there are no cards that says happy 125th birthday <laughs> <When
0: do I? laughs> well you know uh, 50 you get gold 75 diamond uh, 125 oxygen <laughs> something to help people breathe and make it to 126 i guess you know,
3: I, uh, one of the things that's always – first of all, I've been – like you, I've been a big fan of Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes for years and years. So an opportunity to devote some time to remembering all those classic films is really great. Yes. But the in preparing for this and thinking about it, Uh, and you look at the calendar, you'll realize that Basil Rathbone was born in 1892 Mm -hmm. and Nigel Bruce was born in 1895. So contrary to what one might think, uh, Rathbone is actually three years older than Nigel Bruce. But the other interesting thing about this, which we haven't actually had a chance to talk about, is I realized the other day, do you know what's interesting from a Sherlockian perspective about Rathbone's birthday? Uh I do
0: not the year eighteen ninety two well, it's the year that the uh, wisteria Lodge was supposed to have taken place, which it no 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 no, no, not, oh really, wisteria Lodge, yeah
3: uh, uh, that can't be the case, well, it depends on what chronology you're looking at <laughs> so so final if you think that final the final problem happened in April of eight of eighteen ninety one yes then 1892 is of interest because it's during the great hiatus. That's right, and therefore, uh, and I shall obviously have to write a paper about this and send it to Stephen Rothman for the Vega Street Journal. It's perfectly possible that while Holmes was wandering through Tibet, what he was actually doing was fathering Basil
0: Rathbone. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And oh. that accounts for quite a lot, including that odd
0: resemblance between Rathbone and all of those drawings by Sidney Padgett. That could be. That could yeah. very well be. Well, we know, of course, that Rathbone was born in South Africa. Um, so I, I don't know that Holmes ever made it through there. Although they did send, uh, who was it, uh, young Gilchrist from the three students. He was banished to Rhodesia. To join the mm. Rhodesian police, of course, folks at home—if you're playing our home game—you'll know uh, <laughs> Rhodesia now as Zimbabwe. That is so. Yeah, it was uh, it was Wisteria Lodge where Watson himself says, "I find it recorded in my notebook that it was a bleak and windy day towards the end of March in the year 1892." Well, that can't be the case
3: mm. because final problem happened in 1891, an empty house happened in 1894. So wow. Watson. You know, it maybe, must be a coffee stain. I mean, in well, milk. you
0: know that maybe, uh, maybe Watson was covering for Holmes' paternity leave here. It was a, a That's double right blind. Who That's knows? Right. Well, we we uh, we want to cover one thing before we jump into more Rathbonian topics here, and I believe one of those things we want to cover is our friends at Wessex Press. <laughs>
3: The ancient Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex is about to celebrate Midsummer Eve, the festival of the summer solstice, when we light bonfires to protect against evil spirits. But you will be safe once you buy your copy of the Drury Lane Theater Mystery, an original Sherlock Holmes screen treatment by Dennis Hoey from WessexPress.com. What if Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce had made one more movie? This previously unknown screen treatment by Inspector Lestrade himself is a backstage mystery set in London's Drury Lane Theatre. It includes comments and background from Dennis Hoey's son, Michael. Summer is the time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight, to us may seem appareled in celestial light. It's the perfect time to reach for the pleasure only a volume from the Wessex Press can provide. Choose yours today. You know, the big big problem, you know, when you're dealing with these ancient Anglo-Saxon kingdoms... Yeah. Is, I mean it's like everything else. I have mechanical watches and every so often, you know, they do need to be adjusted and cleaned and wound. But when you try to do that with Stonehenge, my goodness, it's difficult.
0: I you have to bring in the
3: bulldozers. <laughs>
0: uh, well that, that's, that's why sextants it's that's so why it was a group project. There was a whole cult involved there. That's right. Crazy. <laughs> Well, we're not here to talk about Stonehenge or cults or anything else like that. We're here to talk about Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, as we promised. Um, they, of course, are the definitive Holmes and Watson for, uh, I would say, a number of generations, not not just the generation that, that grew up uh, in the uh, 30s and 40s, uh, because these are films, and there were, what, 14 films in all? with uh, Rathbone and Bruce and, of course, their wonderful radio series. These are portrayals that have gone on to be played and replayed in countless theaters and uh, television stations and in homes all across the world. Uh, I think at a time that was uh, very critical. You know, this this is uh, only about or less than 10 years after Conan Doyle's death. Uh, you know, a, a, about a decade after the final Sherlock Holmes story appeared in print um, from its original publication, uh, the, that the Sherlock Holmes interest was alive and well. This is around the time that the Baker Street Irregulars was formed and and about the same time that the Baker Street Journal was coming into uh, at least conception. So it was really at a height of Holmes mania. Uh, much like we are seeing uh, in the current day, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. Why don't we actually talk about some of the uh, the films and the roles uh, that we're here to talk about uh, under this amazing series? Of mm-hmm. course, it all started with, uh, with Fox Studios. Uh, there were two films under 20th Century Fox, uh, that were made. There were twelve that were made under the Universal banner, um, but let's begin at the beginning. When uh, at the end of October uh, nineteen thirty-eight, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce had signed on to star in *The Hound of the Baskervilles*. You know, if you are if you are going to start a new movie series, there really isn't a much better Holmes story to start with than the hound of the baskervilles Uh, this was a film that or or a story i should say that uh had been attempted uh to be brought to the screen previously but the rathbone bruce version really became the definitive version and i think still is today uh, because although the hound of the baskervilles is a just a, a master class in storytelling from Conan Doyle, it's also a difficult one to film, just in terms of getting all the elements in and uh, characterizing uh, the dog itself. And, uh, you know, it's it's it, it really has not successfully been brought to screen uh, in a remarkable way other than this 1939 version.
3: And what a cast. In addition to casting Rathbone and Bruce... We, they also cast Richard Green, who had a famous role on television in the 50s as Robin Hood, as Sir Henry Baskerville, and Lionel Atwill, yes. who we'll see again in the years ahead as as Dr. Mortimer.
0: Yes, love Lionel Atwill. And speaking of Dr. Mortimer, it is he who we meet in the first scenes of The Hound of the Baskervilles, just like in the story. Uh, and he has that wonderful quote that still at least in my case raises the uh, the hairs on the back of my neck
2: I have information which leads me to believe that for centuries past every Baskerville who's inherited the estates has met with a violent and sudden death but as I recall it, Sir Charles died from natural causes heart failure apparently, that was the verdict of the coroner in which I, Sir Charles' physician, concurred but there was one point which I kept back from the police from everybody yes? About fifty yards from where Sir Charles fell dead, were footprints—a man's and a woman's. Mister Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound.
0: <laughs> oh, I love that! Um, bum, bum, bum.
3: <laughs> One of the best chapter ends in any story. Really? And we should also we should also mention that in Hound of the Baskervilles, we also had the first appearance of mary gordon as ah. mrs hudson so we will we'll will be seeing her again
0: yes yeah I, I love how they um they they made uh, fair use of a number of recurring not only recurring roles but recurring actors in uh different roles uh, you know as you said lionel atwell will uh, make another appearance although in a different form uh later on but um one interesting bit of trivia about the hound of the baskervilles uh, is as they put together this Dartmoor set uh in order to really make it look uh, believable realistic, they pumped fog in to the set for the duration of the filming. I guess it was over the course of uh many weeks and at the end at the end of it, the artificial fog reportedly cost ninety three thousand dollars <laughs> not a small amount in those days. Yeah.
3: And you know the lovely thing um, about this at the time was this was Rathbone's first opportunity to really create the character of Sherlock Holmes, and he
0: looked back on he apparently looked back on that with a great deal of fondness and pride. He did, he did, and I, I you know even in his uh, in his uh, autobiography, in and out of character, I think he still had uh, warm feelings for uh, for this particular. Uh, Th- th- this particular um uh outing as holmes mm. Mm. so and you know there there was uh i, th- I think a, a few things to quibble with um, it was fairly faithful but of course you had the séance scene uh which interestingly actually touched into conan doyle's own interest in uh, spiritualism and um strangely you had Barrymore, the butler Uh, And his wife, he was renamed Barryman. Why do you think that would have been, Bert? Oh, well, that's because of John Barrymore. And
3: uh, I think at that point, Barrymore's star certainly had uh, faded a bit. And the idea of having a butler named Barrymore... Particularly with how visible John Barrymore was, but not only that, Ethel and Lionel Barrymore.
0: Yeah, don't forget Lionel. <laughs> you know, my Happy might New have. Year to you in jail, <laughs>
3: <laughs> friends. It's the only place you're going to hear an impression of Lionel Barrymore this week, <laughs> and a good impression. But you know, I think it was feared that particularly in the film community that that would seem to be a sort of a gratuitous insult and it's an easy enough thing to change the name of Barrymore to Barryman and Barrymore Barryman was played by um oh boy I just blanked on his name one of my favorite actors Martha Plimpton's uh, uncle
0: um John Carradine yes yes Carradine right well old what's his name Oh, my, what's my, my favorite actor, old what's his name? Yes, yes. Uh, well, where's my Google-assisted memory? <laughs> so when it was released, it was uh, it, it was actually reviewed quite favorably, and and let's not forget, 1939 was quite a year for movies. Uh, you had Gone with the Wind, uh, uh, The Wizard of Oz, Wizard of, sure. Uh, you know a number of you know films that still remain in the collective consciousness today. So in The Spectator Graham Greene wrote in this new film, Holmes is undoubtedly Holmes and he hasn't to compete desperately with telephones and high speed cars and 1939. The atmosphere of unmechanical Edwardian flurry is well caught. The villain bowls recklessly along Baker Street in a hansom, and our hero discusses plans for actions in a four wheeler. So that, that period very um, astutely maintained by 20th Century Fox. Right. Very well received
3: and so well received that just a little bit more than two months after the Hound opened in the cinema, uh, good old 20th Century Fox began work on the second Sherlock Holmes film, which was The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which was supposed to be an adaptation of the William Gillette play. Uh, But it really depends on your definition of adaptation. If you think an adaptation is uh, typed because the original was typed and has Sherlock Holmes in it because the original had Sherlock Holmes in it, then this is in fact an adaptation. But other than that, there's nothing (laughs) at all in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes that links to uh, that original Gillette play by the time they got done with the script writing.
0: Yeah. And, and this wasn't the first time that Gillette's play had been adapted for the screen. Um, of course, we know that Gillette himself uh, did did so very faithfully in uh, 1916. And that silent film was recently uh, rediscovered in the last couple of years. We wrote about that, of course, on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Um, we actually broke the news. Um, but it had also been adapted for the screen in 1932. That's by, by Clive Brook. Yeah, Clive Brook, but mm. you know, seven years later, well, that was old news, <laughs> and you've got you've got the new Sherlock Holmes on your hands. So, uh, in this case, we've got an ingenious plot by good old Moriarty, who uh, wants to stage a robbery of the crown jewels out of the Tower of London, and uh, well. We'll let Lionel Atwill, as Moriarty, tell us all about it himself.
2: Holmes, you've only now barely miss sending me to the gallows. You're the one man in England clever enough to defeat me. The situation has become impossible. Have you any suggestions? I'm going to break you, Holmes. I'm going to bring off right under your nose the most incredible crime of the century, and you'll never suspect it until it's too late. That will be the end of you, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Hmm.
0: <laughs> not not quite as bone-chilling as they were the footprints of a gigantic hound, but still enough to leave an impact, right?
3: Yeah, it, you know, when you're doing this, one of the things you've got to do is introduce Moriarty. You know, in he doesn't have the quite the prominence hmm. that Holmes does. You know, you can presume that if the movie says the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, people are going to go to the cinema and expect to see a fellow who looks like Sherlock Holmes. So you have to introduce Moriarty. But part of the problem with the way that the the story worked is. Um, you take out a lot of suspense with that with that early challenge. Mm. Um, and so you don't have Holmes, uh, I don't think, effectively trying to figure out what all of these details and strange events really mean. And uh, so I think it's a less successful picture than Hound.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it, it seemed at least to uh, not only some reviewers but even some of the actors at the time that – uh this this plot the or at least the the script was uh, just too padded uh, it it went on for too long and and wound in in different ways that didn't really propel the action forward as uh, urgently as it might otherwise have done um and you know you've got you've got interludes too uh, you know the comic relief of of Holmes plucking on his uh, violin <laughs> uh, uh, throughout the uh, the thing. We'll, we'll get to uh, the denouement of that uh, mm-hmm. in a bit. But of course, there was the musical interlude uh, with Rathbone in disguise uh, singing that old favorite I Do Like to Be Beside the Seaside. Now
2: oh, I do like to be beside the seaside I do like to be beside the sea I do like to stroll along the prom, 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 where the frost band plays ding a So just let
1: me be beside
2: the seaside. I'll be beside myself with glee. For there's lots of girls beside I should like to be beside, beside the seaside, beside the sea.
0: You know, <laughs> one of the the funniest reminders of that was a couple of years ago at the Baker Street Irregulars Weekend. The Baker Street Babes had their annual gala. And the theme was uh, the beach. And they encouraged people to show up in appropriate Victorian beach attire. Well, good old Tim Greer, one of our listeners, and uh, he was with us here on the show recently. Uh, Tim Greer showed up as Basil Rathbone in that getup from, I do like to be beside the seaside, you know, the, the striped blazer and the straw boater and, uh, even the false nose and mustache, uh, it was, was pretty creative and, uh, and funny.
3: Oh, it's a hoot, you know, it's a lovely moment in the picture. It's, it's one of the most creative things about one of Sherlock Holmes's disguises that you could imagine. And it gave Rathbone an opportunity to sing and dance uh, you know, my goodness, how he must have enjoyed it. Um, yeah. But, you know, even Nigel Bruce in his autobiography, there's an unpublished autobiography of Nigel Bruce that you can find online, uh, observed that we took five and a half weeks to make a rather rambling and complicated story which had no resemblance to any of the writings of Conan Doyle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's very interesting from a uh, an actor – playing a Watson eventually that had no uh, resemblance to the Watson of the books. Uh, But I I do like uh, a couple of points about this, this film. One is that they clearly had fun on the set. Uh, Ida Lupino uh, was really her first dramatic uh, part. Um, But she, uh, she had fun on the set because she called Rathbone uh, by her pet name, which was Basil, bath rug <laughs> there's no record as to how he took to that but uh was was very uh very interesting so oh you know what my mistake my mm. mistake we we thought lionel atwill was professor moriarty he was not oh right no no did we say that uh oh right we did did we say it was we, Atwell we was started than... with him yeah but um because he, he appeared, uh, in, in a later, uh, version, but he was replaced at the last minute by George Zuko.
1: Mm.
0: One take Zuko. Mm. So, um, our apologies for that. That's, that's who you heard in that clip it was not Lionel Atwill, but George Zuko. Oh, right. Um, but the other thing, uh, was in terms of the, uh, the, 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 fun that the folks had here, uh, we as viewers were treated to some of that fun as well. And the ending, Uh, To really tie up all the loose ends was changed to a a brief restaurant scene uh, where you've got Holmes once again plucking away on his violin and Watson really stepping in to uh, save the day for not only for Holmes but for all of us as well.
1: Those flies again.
2: Very effective, my dear Watson. Elementary, my dear Holmes.
0: Elementary. <laughs> there we go. That's uh, almost reminiscent of uh, of Christopher Plummer squashing the pea for James Mason. <laughs> you you know. squashed my pea. Uh, the roles were reversed. Well, uh, at that point, you know, there's there's a bit of a hiatus here with Holmes and Watson. This this, of course, was uh, toward the end of 1939 uh, that the film. Uh, was released, I think, in um, September 1st is when it was released into the cin- into the cinemas. Uh, but then by the time October rolled around, you've got a slightly different appearance by Rathbone and Bruce as Holmes and Watson. They decided, well, through their agents, I'm sure, that they would suddenly take to radio. Starting on October 2nd, 1939 both, excuse me, Rathbone and Bruce would appear every Monday night on NBC from 8.30 to 9. And we've got a wonderful dramatization of the stories done by none other than Edith Miser. And uh, she she was admired by both Rathbone and Bruce. And her husband, Tom McKnight, directed the series. He was a Sherlock Holmes enthusiast.
2: This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by short wave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes.
0: You know, I, I don't <laughs> know if, uh, if the Petri family took quite enough time.
3: <laughs> but, you know, it was such a charming
0: um, setup. For those
3: stories the the idea the concept was of course that Watson had retired mm-hmm. to a uh, rambling redwood ranch house in California in the United States for some reason, uh, with I think puppies and dogs or something like yes, that yes so puppies. we would en- we would encounter Watson in uh, <laughs> on the Pacific coast. <laughs> Uh, sitting before a raising fire, a uh, raging fire, uh, tending to his dogs, puffing on his pipe and quaffing cold quarts <laughs> of, <laughs> of petri wine or sherry yes. or petri
0: pour. Uh, young fellow, my lad, <laughs> used to call Mister Bart. Mister Bartel is yes, young fellow, my lad. <laughs> uh. But yeah, it was uh, it was a formula that worked for quite some time. Uh, this. Uh, this series went on uh, for I think a couple of years and then was resurrected uh, in the, the mid40s once again. Uh, so it was it was uh, probably 1942 before we got back to Holmes and Watson on the screen. You know uh, the war began after the Pearl Harbor attack on December 7th, 1941. Um, and and the Conan Doyle estate and 20th Century Fox were in protracted negotiations. And as one might expect when the Conan Doyle sons are involved, uh, the negotiations broke down <laughs> between uh, Dennis and Adrenaline. Excuse me, yeah. Adrian. Yeah.
3: Well, the interesting thing is that, Uh, You know, Rathbone, up until the time he was cast as Sherlock Holmes, had been playing movie villains and he was a little concerned about Mm. being typecast. And so he plays Holmes twice. Well, and and this is an actor who for his career was so concerned about being typecast and who felt he was typecast by Holmes. So when the 220th Century Fox pictures end, what does he do? He becomes a villain in, in the mark In The Mark of Zorro. Yes. And Nigel Bruce, oddly enough, makes a couple of pictures with Alfred Hitchcock in Rebecca and Suspicion. Um, So it's interesting how versatile, for all of the typecasting, the the way Bruce himself was typed as Bubus Britannicus, Mm. it's interesting uh, how many parts he got to play and and what his experience was with directors like Hitchcock.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I remember seeing him in... um I uh, think what was it uh suspicion mm. uh as uh, as Cary Grant's friend mm. so so um so you you you've got uh, you know this this interlude here of a couple of years and um fox 20th century fox wanted to they wanted to to move away from the traditional and and of course the war was mm. on everyone's minds and spies and uh, foreign agents and spies were much more typical and topical than the antiquated criminal activities of Professor Moriarty and the like, uh, according to the executives at Fox. Mm. Um, so um, what ended up happening is uh, with 20th Century Fox no longer being in uh, official ne- negotiations with uh, the Conan Doyle family, uh, Universal Studios stepped up, and they decided that they would do the unthinkable. They would transport Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson to present day, to 1942.
3: Yeah, and it's it's yeah it's worth pointing out that uh, detective films at, at that time were a big deal, and Universal was the only studio that didn't have a series. So, 20th Century Fox had Charlie Chan. They had Mr. Moto, played by Peter Lorre. Yes. MGM had The Thin Man, which went on for over a decade. Warner Brothers had a series. Philo Vance was at Paramount. But Universal didn't have The
0: Detective. And so, voila. Yeah. and But, you know, when you think about this, it, it, it was not some, uh, you know, an outre thing that Universal did by bringing Holmes to present day. Yeah. When, when you look at The Hound of the Baskervilles and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the, those were actually the first films of Holmes that were done in Victorian times. Right. All of the other films until then were filmed as modern-day adaptations. Right. You know, Eileen Norwood, Clive Brooke, John Barrymore, sure. those all played Sherlock Holmes uh, in present-day London.
3: Well, Conan Doyle, you know, the last series of stories, of course, was published in 1927. So from 1890 to 1927, so that's almost 40 years, Holmes was a constant figure in publication and therefore always viewed as contemporary. So even when Raymond Massey did The Speckled Band in the 1930s, he was shown in modern dress in this sort of bizarre detective agency with lots of secretaries and dictographs and And you're absolutely right. Rathbone was the first to to take Holmes back to Victorian car.
0: Yeah. So you've got this deal that uh, Universal did with uh, the Conan Doyle estate with uh, the brothers. It was a seven-year deal, $300,000, and it included the rights to 21 stories from the canon. Uh, And the only stipulation therein was that Universal had to make three movies a year, and at least two of which had to be adaptations of the original stories. So it was a um, obviously a uh, a creative writing effort for the writing staff there. They had to be uh, a little inventive in terms of how they adapted. And it's very clear, as you'll see in some of these films, uh, which stories came into play based on the plots. Um, but uh, Rathbone and Bruce uh, got a long-term contract out of this as well. Um, they, they had, uh, what was it, $850 a week for 40 weeks a year, and and then a raise of $100 a week at the end of each year. So um, especially for Bruce, who appreciated steady work, this was a good deal. So then we move into uh, February of 1942, when Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror kicked off. Uh, this was directed by John Rawlins and uh, was based loosely on His Last bow. Uh, but this is, of course, the infamous debut of the Basil Rathbone do <laughs> or don't, as some may put it. Uh, bad hair Basil with that with that. Look as if he stood backwards in a wind tunnel and was impersonating Julius Caesar or something. Um, but you've got, you've got Holmes in pursuit of the Nazis, uh, who are spreading propaganda on the radio through something that is known as the Voice of Terror.
2: Are you ready, operative number seven? This is the Voice of Terror, a secret airplane factory somewhere in England. Listen. Screams of the dying can still be heard. This is the voice of terror. Are you there, people of Britain, shivering in your cellars? Listen, Operative 41. The fuse is lighted. Oil to fuel your navy, to feed your tanks. There it goes up in smoke by the millions of gallons. This is the voice of terror. Do you still believe that there are secrets unknown to the Fuhrer? Listen.
0: I have to say that's an interesting accent. I can't quite make out whether it's English, German, or Japanese. <laughs> a little bit of everything in that one. Yeah,
3: and and of course it was based on the real life exploits of Lord Haw Haw, who was really a small group of English-speaking announcers who broadcast from Germany, who broadcast into the United Kingdom via medium wave and then by short wave around the world into the United States. And one of those was a fellow named William Joyce, who was an American Irishman who became a German citizen who, and who began every one of his broadcasts with uh, the distinctive announcement, Germany calling, Germany calling. <laughs> and so this was very relevant. People would know, yeah. uh, would relate this to, uh, to something. Well, so they had the bombing raids and the motor cars and the gunfights and they're very different from – from the Hound of the Baskervilles and the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes.
0: It is very different, but when you think about the realistic nature of the Sherlock Holmes stories in the Strand magazine as they appeared and, and people writing to Baker Street thinking that Sherlock Holmes was a real individual, uh, this was an extension of that. And, and look, this, this is no, uh, I mean, I think about radio itself. Remember, it, it was in 1938 that Orson Welles ran War of the Worlds, and that was so realistic, in fact, that people actually believed that it was happening. So this notion of uh, art imitating life, I think, was uh, a running theme. Yeah, and and in his unpublished autobiography, Nigel
3: Bruce observed that Basil and I were much opposed to the modernizing of these stories. But the producer pointed out to us that the majority of the youngsters who would see our pictures were accustomed to the fast-moving action of gangster pictures and that expecting machine guns, police sirens, cars traveling at 80 miles an hour, and dialogue like, put him up, bud.
2: How do you do, sir? Right. I suppose I should say, how are you, buddy? Uh, What's, uh... What's cooking?
0: Oh, coming on, what's? Oh, <laughs> so, so, so. In book. Uh, what's cooking? <laughs> what, what's
3: cooking, yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, well, that's wonderful. And that's from Washington, right? Sherlock Holmes in Washington.
0: No, no, that, that, was, uh, that was this one. Uh, that oh, was really? What's oh, also terror. Yeah, yeah. What's cooking, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's
3: right. He meets an American.
0: And he tries to speak American to it, <laughs> right? Yeah. I think we get to to more of the the, the gum chewing and whatnot in Sherlock Holmes uh, in Washington. Yeah,
3: well, this is where uh, the real the character of Watson really uh, changed, uh, yeah. you know. And I think that it was because they felt the need to introduce a little uh, light relief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Nigel Bruce, in his, again in his autobiography, said, uh, you know, as I played him, the doctor was a complete stooge. for for his brilliant friend and one whose intelligence was almost negligible. Many of the lovers of Conan Doyle must have been shocked not only by this caricature of the famous doctor, but by seeing the great detective alighting from an aeroplane and the good doctor listening to his radio.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, even Lauren Usselman later on observed that, you know, if if a mop bucket appeared in a scene, (laughs) his foot would be inside it. And if by some sardonic twist of fate he managed to stumble upon an important clue, he could be depended upon to blow his nose on it and throw it away. <laughs> yeah, this this is really where we see the origin of Watson as uh, Boobus Britannicus, unfortunately. Well, you know, our friend uh, Jerry Kegley is... Oh, Jerry Kegley. Yeah, he's a, uh, a just a staunch defender of Nigel Bruce as Watson. And uh, I, don't, I don't think Jerry buys into the bubis Britannicus claim. So
3: Oh, no. well, I'm a great fan of Nigel Bruce, too. I, it's important to note that Nigel Bruce didn't get up one morning and say to himself, you know, I think this is what I'm going to do. I mean, no, the idea up, of providing a little said, comic relief to the story, you know, was something
0: that was uh, suggested to him. Of course. And in, of course he didn't get up and say that. He got up and said, <laughs> what
3: was that again? <laughs> he got up and said, "Oh, uh, my check is here.
0: Very good." <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're you're absolutely right. This is this was a deliberate move by the the creators, uh, the, the the entire team. It was not a Nigel Bruce decision, um, but but Rathbone himself understood the importance of having uh, uh, his colleague and friend Nigel Bruce playing Watson. He said, "There's no question in my mind that Nigel Bruce was the ideal Doctor Watson, not only of his time but of possibly." Of and for all time. There was an endearing quality to his performance that, to a very large extent, I believe, humanized the relationship between Dr. Watson and Mr. Holmes. It has always seemed to me to be more possible that our adventures might have met with a less kindly public acceptance, had they been recorded by a less lovable companion to Holmes than was Nigel's Dr. Watson, and a less engaging friend to me than was Willie Bruce. Mm.
3: Well, that's you know the one the one word really that stands out in that to me is lovable. Nigel Bruce's Watson yes. really
0: was lovable, and yes. I think
3: that came through to the audience.
0: Yes, indeed. But someone who was not lovable in that film was our friend Henry Daniel, the uh, waspish, suspicious member of the British intelligence, and he, of course, will appear later in the series as I think one of the definitive Moriarty's in this series. Mm. Uh, Henry Daniel. And, of course, we also had the, the uh, debut of another series regular, Harry Cording. He played, uh, I think, eight roles in the Universal series. And mm. he was Camberwell. Of course, you'll remember Camberwell the Poisoner. He was the ex-prisoner who confronts Holmes uh, in a bar in Limehouse. So then we've uh, we we've got to wait another 5 months before we get to Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon um which again was uh was it was in the the war-torn uh London based on the adventure of the Dancing Men uh, and you've got um notably here uh, a few firsts we've got uh the first time that we see Dennis Hoey as Inspector Lestrade uh, and you've got, um, well, I mean, why don't we, why don't we pause for a moment and, and honor the, uh, the memory of Lestrade.
1: Told you it was a lot of nonsense. I don't understand. That thing was where a ton. Look at those men staggering. You fit on something, Doctor. A few tools would take that maternity. we have just looked inside. On the top only, there might be a false bottom. Are oh, you, you stop there! Stop all our shoot. i be blown! You're not hurt? No. Well, you needn't have yelled at them so abruptly. Huh? They dropped me on my head. Oh, Maria, he would have been delighted.
0: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. Uh, you know, Hoey would uh, would go on to star in uh, a number of, or or uh, join them in a number of other um, uh, movies. And uh, this is where we see the return of uh, Lionel Atwill. Uh, he he played Moriarty in this version uh, mm. after getting dropped from the adventures uh, in favor of George Zuko. Mm. Um, but more importantly, I think this is uh, the, the start of another collaboration, and that is with the director, uh, Roy William Neal. Oh, yes, indeed. And we noted
3: back in Iho's episode 36... I think it was where we first uh, used a little clip of this, that Neil's entry into this series was a major event. He really had a huge effect on the staging, the characterization, the production um, and Neil really defined the rest of these pictures, and you know it's worth pointing out this is the second in a series of twelve that happened at Universal. So the first one was Voice of Terror, and so from now on they'll be directed by Roy William Neal. And some years ago, uh, Rathbone, in one of, in a rare talk, uh, recounted the experience of this production and the influence of uh, Roy William Neal. There
2: was a little man called Roy Neal. He was a comparatively unknown director, but he had uh, great devotion to the stories. And He was the producer, director, and writer with uh, another with a man who helped out in the writing called Mullhauser. Um, these, these scripts were prepared so that one month before we were to appear on the set... Uh, we were called down. We were sent the scripts. There was Dennis Howey, who played Lestrade. There was Nigel Bruce, uh, Watson, myself, and whomever, the leading woman, or perhaps one other important character. If it was Moriarty, it would be uh, Lionel Attle, or uh, Henry Daniel, or uh, George George Zuckow. Wasn't that his name? Zuckow, yeah. Uh, we would meet and these, we would read through the scripts. And uh, Roy would say... Now, if you fellows want to make any comments, this is the time, uh, because um, from here in this story goes into production, and on Monday, April the 9th, we shall start shooting at nine o'clock. Well, uh, if there were comments to be made, if there was anything which bothered any of us, we were allowed we spoke at that time. None of those pictures made at Universal took more than 17 days. We uh, never started shooting before nine, which is the n- normal time. Today it's 8.30 or even 8 o'clock. Uh, nine o'clock until six. No night work unless it was so specified that it called for night work. Four o'clock was half an hour for tea. And this was th- this mood... uh, of the the whole of the making of these pictures, they had a um, sense of family. We all got along very well together. We had our little differences from time to time. But the one lovely character of them all was our dear friend, uh, Roy Neal, the director. Uh, They were 12 very special experiences.
0: That's a wonderful recording. We should probably note that that was made on a visit with the Mywand Jezales in um, Wayne, Nebraska, in November of 1965. So that would have been just about two years before Rathbone passed away. Um, he... Was very hesitant usually to join Sherlockian societies for meetings. Never accepted an invitation to attend the Baker Street Irregulars dinner, um, but he uh, did manage to make it to this uh, this this uh, group in Nebraska, of all places, and uh, gave that wonderful talk.
3: Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's lovely to hear his perspective. Uh, he's slightly shocked, I hear, at the <laughs> idea of starting at eight. Oh, eight thirty, eight, eight, <laughs> eight o'clock. It, yeah. I mean what he would have to say about today's film production. <laughs> oh, please. Uh would please. drive him crazy. And then at four o'clock they broke for tea and they took seventeen days. Well my goodness, you could tell and they got paid a princely sum. Yes. You, know, you could tell why uh or uh, well, particularly Nigel Bruce was so <laughs> fond of having this continue as long as possible. <laughs>
0: uh, and and the, the fond memories of George Zuckow. Zuckow, is that his name? Yeah. Uh, Zuckow has Moriarty. Now, Holmes, what should it be?
1: The gas chamber, the cup of hemlock, or just a simple bullet through your brain? You disappoint me, Professor. Indeed Yes. Somehow I always thought that in the end, you'd prove to be just an ordinary
0: cutthroat. That, of course, is Lionel Atwill from this Mm. time around in The Secret of Sherlock Holmes. So, well, anyway... uh, there. No, it's not The Secret of Sherlock Holmes. It's Sherlock Holmes in the Secret secret, Weapon. Secret Weapon, yes. I I don't know why
3: I keep doing that. Well, Um, I think that was their original title, wasn't it, or something uh, like that? Oh, no, it was supposed to have been called Sherlock Holmes Fights Back. Fights Back,
0: yes, yes. Well, so uh, let's, let's keep moving along here now that we've got Roy William Neal on board. He kept them going at a pretty quick pace. Let's do the same. Uh, originally titled Sherlock Holmes in the USA, we, of course, have Sherlock Holmes in Washington, which this was uh, Universal's original story. Uh, you've got a British secret agent who's assigned the task of uh, smuggling out an important document. That, of course, is vital to the war effort. And uh, he wants to get it to the authorities in Washington. He's shrunken this message into a microfilm, and the microfilm is uh, encased in a uh, a match folder. So uh, this this, of course, is where we see Henry Daniel join us once again as a uh, kind of a smarmy uh, yet suave henchman uh, called Mister Easter. Mm uh so uh, we, we're, we're we're delighted to be graced with his presence once again um mm. but the villain uh hinkle you
3: know is played by george zucko so he is the uh i think he's an antique stealer or something like that yes in, uh, in his picture and this would be the last time that he turns up in a holmes picture he was of course uh, Moriarty Mm. in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And, uh, here he is as the evil Heinrich Hinkle boy. I wonder what would give him away with a name like Heinrich Hinkle. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: know, in 1943. Mm. Well, and, um, just to, just to have it summed up accurately, let's turn to Holmes himself. Just as
2: I thought, this document has been reduced to microfilm to make its concealment possible. Alfred Pettibone is most ingenious fellow. A bulky document is obviously difficult to conceal. But two pages of a state paper, photographed on microfilm, would be reduced to a size no larger than a halfpenny stamp. Slitting a match folder with this, uh, with this razor blade, Betty placed the now minute document inside, stuck it together again, and there he had it. An American match folder, rare in London, but completely inconspicuous in the United States. Do you mean to say we're off to America just to look for a match folder? (laughs) It's a big country. A big country, Watson. And a small match folder.
3: Come along. Ah. <laughs> now, oddly enough, you know, the plan was that they would have Mycroft in this picture, which is a great uh, loss for me. So Mycroft never appeared. And, and the idea of having Mycroft in it was, uh, you know, never followed up on. And the idea was that Mycroft would be the one who would be getting Holmes involved in this case at the beginning of the picture. But the casting was supposed to be Oscar Hamalka, <laughs> who... You know, if you Google search Oscar Hamalka and uh, see his photograph, I mean, he's a he's a fine actor. He's an Austrian. He was in one of Hitchcock's pictures, but it certainly wasn't my particular conception of uh, of Mycroft. So probably it's you know not a not a great tragedy. Yeah,
0: which we uh, we didn't get any kind of um, uh, and any kind of portrayal of uh, Mycroft at all in the rest of the series which is unfortunate when you think about it yeah. um you know I, I think robert morley was alive at the time and he i don't know if he ever played mycroft in a film but he would have made the type of you know the, had the type of profile of an actor that could have uh been entirely appropriate as a mycroft so mm. but anyway i just love the name oscar Hamalka. There was a there's was was an old a, George Carlin routine where he was talking about some beach blanket bingo uh type movie. He said starring Sandra D, Bobby V, and Oscar Hamalka. <laughs> Would have been quite a film. Well, uh on to the next uh, couple of Holmes films. Uh we're we're moving away from Oh the you know, I just remembered something. What's that?
3: Morley did play uh Mycroft, I think
0: With, uh, what's his name? With John Neville. Oh, you're right. In in Study in Terror. Six? Study in Terror? 66, 67? What was that? Yeah, it was in the 60s. 65. Because I just
3: had this image of that
0: particular scene. Yes, yes.
3: And I was trying to remember, because Morley did so much, you know, and I remember Morley from, uh, you know, a lot of his uh, detective and comic detective pictures, but I'm pretty sure he was Mycroft with, with John Neville.
0: I think that is the one. That is the one, because it was, uh, it was a set piece. Mm. It was done in, um, uh, in the actual time. Uh, and it was, uh, Holmes versus Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that Morley was in that one. Mm. So perfect. Well, uh, we are on to the next Holmes film, uh, in 1943. Uh, I guess Neil, at this point, had tired of the Nazis, so it was on to Sherlock Holmes' face's death. Uh, (laughs) This, of course, was an adaptation of uh, The Musgrave Ritual, Uh, an interesting uh, take on it. It was um, not quite the same. It didn't have the same meter as The Musgrave Ritual, but we'll, uh, we'll let you hear it.
1: Who first shall find it were better dead. Who next shall find it head. The last to find it defies dark powers and brings good fortune to Hurston Towers. Where was the light on the face of the messenger? Where did he speed to guard the queen's page?
0: <laughs> See, any time you can have thunder and lightning effects uh, wrapped in it, uh, it's a it really adds to it. Oh, it's great. This is one of the great uh classic pictures. I mean it's not
3: really Sherlock Holmes, but it's such a wonderful example of those universal pictures. You know, you've got secret passageways, yeah. an old castle. You've got the Musgrave ritual which plays out as a chess as a chess game, which is a little bizarre even as a chess game. You've got people like Hilary Brooke, who we were just listening to who went on to be sort of the comic foil for Abbott and Costello years later. Mm. And you've got Milburn. You've got Watson is taking care of all of these shell-shocked um, veterans from the war in uh, in the Musgrave, in Musgrave Manor. And you've got Milburn Stone mm. there who went on to a great role in the television series Gunsmoke in the United States. And he was Doc. a very short a- actor and uh, I think everybody they cast was a taller than Milburn Stone. So one wonders why they cast him in the first place. Yeah. But even in, even in Rathbone, who was not particularly a tall man, you know, there was one scene where he had to walk across the floor or something with Milburn Stone. And so uh, Rathbone walked on the floor and Milburn Stone walked on a little stage that they had put up, you know, that sort of elevated him by a foot.
0: <laughs> that's wonderful well and of course uh this is the first time we are treated to uh Sherlock Holmes in the universal series without that wind swept yes uh, it is it is back to uh, the old swept back style um, but you know largely Sherlock Holmes faces death is regarded as one of the better uh films in the series and if you know if you're going to start anywhere uh, in the universal series if you want to skip over the um uh, the the the, the war torn Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes versus the Nazis this is a fine piece to start with a fine movie because it, it 's just that classic genre of um, well it's partially the the Hollywood 1940s horror films you know because you 've got aspects of the sets in there it's it 's that locked room mystery it 's you know the the chessboard it 's the Musgrave ritual tied in it 's got a lot of great elements that make it a, a lot of fun.
3: Mm. Yeah, and we should point out that they, they made these in tranches. So the first three pictures they made together. So it's not, as Rathbone said in his discussion, you know, they get together for 17 days and then say goodbye. So they did Voice of Terror, Secret Weapon, and Sherlock Holmes in Washington in one go. Mm. And then Faces Death and Spider Woman, uh, which we're about to talk about in the, in the
0: second go. But before we get to the Spider Woman... Uh, we want to have a little bit of fun regarding death ourselves. We do have a new sponsor for this show, Sherlock Holmes and the Cryptic Clues, A Grave Undertaking. This is a book by Michael W. McClure, who is a fellow member of the Baker Street Irregulars. And I have to say, there really isn't another book like this on the market. Um, it, it is it, his it, Michael's investiture... In the um, in the Baker Street Irregulars is Stimson and Company. Now, Bert, do you know the significance of Stimson and Company? Oh, they were always digging for the
3: truth. They were <laughs> digging for something,
0: I think, weren't they? <laughs> yes, they are the only uh, the only funeral uh, service mentioned in the entire canon, and. Michael formed a uh, science Society of the BSI in 1990 uh, called uh, Stimson Company. And these are four people that work in the funeral business <laughs> who are also Sherlockians. So, you, you know, you talk about niche. You know, not only is that group niche, but this book, this book is targeted at people who have gallows humor. You know, if you've ever visited uh, Disney World, the uh, Magic Kingdom, or, uh, Disneyland and have gone through the ride, uh, the haunted mansion. You wait in line there and there are some, uh, pretty amusing, uh, tombstones that, that await you. And basically what you've got with, uh, this book is a, a graveyard <laughs> that is, uh, honoring about 300 Sherlockians. It's all invested irregulars and ash. Uh, and their their faces are featured on various tombstones and grave sites uh, along with a name of a character from the canon now the only the only trick is the name that appears on the tombstone does not necessarily align with that person's investiture <laughs> so it's a bit of a treasure hunt you know so uh, you know we talk about the uh, the gamesmanship and the treasure hunt in um Uh, Sherlock Holmes faces death not really that uh, dissimilar here in in, in Sherlock Holmes and the cryptic clues
3: it is a terrific book and I have to tell you that although I've had it for a couple of weeks I am dying to get into
0: it yeah (laughs) well you can enjoy some headlines or some tombstones like here lie the remains of Franklin the Crank For the peace we enjoy, we have God to thank. (laughs) John Clayton's fame was quite vast. He'd drive his cab very fast, claiming, I am renowned for covering ground. The ground covered him at the last. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Rest in Pete. (laughs) Well, surely that happens if you're buried in Scotland. Oh, don't call me Shirley. Well... (laughs) If you would like to get the final word in Sherlockian scholarship, uh, go ahead and get on over to BaskervilleProductions.com and check under the books uh, section there. You can buy it in uh, paperback or hardcover. Uh, it's it's poignant. It's, it's punny. It is uh, everything you would want in gallows humor and Sherlockians. So... Uh, Bert and I are uh, thrilled to be included in this tome, and we are thrilled to have Sherlock Holmes and the Cryptic Clues as part of our sponsorship lineup. Yeah. Well, back to Rathbone and Bruce, we were we were crawling over to the Spider Woman, as I recall. Oh yeah, yeah. So this one, this, this is another one that involves some of the original stories, or was based on uh, some of the original stories. Well kind of, yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, <laughs> well <it's, laughs> it starts, you know, it starts with a, a tip of the uh, of the fishing cap to uh
0: yeah, oh, that's true. to the
3: to the final um, problem in which um Holmes uh, appears to be dead, but unlike the noble battle with Professor Moriarty at the Reichenbach, uh, Holmes uh, mentions to Watson uh, that he's got some strange symptoms, which Mm. in in about 20 seconds, Watson's keen diagnostic uh, gifts uh, Mm. apparently uh, lead him to quickly conclude that Holmes has just, you know, minutes to live. (laughs) And uh, so, of course, they do what what you and I would do. They go fishing. (laughs) and amazingly uh Holmes while he's out there in the pond uh or in the river uh falls in and the world is aghast to learn that Sherlock Holmes is dead
0: ah oh, go figure well not for long no uh, as uh, as as we're about to hear Holmes does in fact uh find Lestrade and gets on the case
2: the instrument of death was a spider. There's no doubt about it, Lestrade. And the bite of the creature drove these pyjama suicides to kill themselves. How did he get into your room? Oh, this ventilator. Now, don't tell me that their spider had your name and address in his pocket. Hardly. This screen was removed from the mouth of the ventilator, obviously to admit something much larger than a spider. We know only half of the machinery of these crimes.
0: Ah, the ventilator and an animal crawling through it. Where do they, where do they get that from? Oh, it sounds a bit like the speckled band. Yes, yes well it it uh it was a lot of fun, and you've got uh, Gail Sondergaard, who uh joined them this time around uh for this wonderful uh, and she really was a wonderful villain uh really kind of standing in the place of moriarty uh, as a uh, uh a villainous foil yeah oh it was wonder yeah really wonderful the terrible Adria Spedding
3: the Spider Woman, and she became so popular. At least the character name and Gail mm. Sundergaard became so popular that there was another picture, I think, in which she uh, played Spider-Woman yeah, uh, in the, 1944, the, along with Rondo Hatton, who, who we're about to find in another picture.
0: Yes, yeah. So that was uh, a fun outing. Then, of course, we went on uh, to Sherlock Holmes and The Scarlet Claw and uh, just as a reminder we are still in 1944 here uh and and happening also concurrently in the sherlockian world i think 44 was when the the trilogy dinner happened mm. uh that was the extra uh baker street irregulars uh function that year march of 1944 it was called the trilogy dinner because three books were published and handed out at that dinner uh those books were Uh, The Misadventures of Sherlock Holmes by Ellery Queen. Mm. And uh, let's see, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, a textbook in friendship by good old Christopher Morley. And I believe the third was Profile in Gaslight by Edgar Smith. So just some remarkable uh, books in the Sherlockian trove at the time while these films were uh, being put out. So Spider-Woman followed by now Scarlet Claw.
3: Oh, and the Scarlet Claw is one of my favorites. It's got to be my favorite top one or two of the Rathbone Universal pictures because mm. this is a picture that borrows sort of atmospherically from the Hound of the Baskervilles, so you have this this creepy, fog-ridden area. You're up in Canada in a remote village called La Mont Rouge, you know, mm. which so, so when you when when you when you have your letterheads imprinted, uh, the Red Death. You know something is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where do you live, David? Oh, it's a charming town called La Mont Rouge. Oh, I don't know about that. Michael McClure might like that though.
0: Yes, yes. Indeed.
3: And there's some strange beast cutting out the throats of its victims. And Holmes' client, uh, sadly, is Lady Penrose. Who unfortunately dies
0: ringing the church bell mm. for help? Mm. No, and once again in uh, in this film we're greeted by um, uh, who Gerald Hamer. Oh boy, yeah, mm. yeah. So a lot of lot of fun there. He's a lucky guy. He
3: got to play some really unique roles and uh, as part of the stock company here. Yes. At
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, well done, and. On to uh, the next entry in the series, Sherlock Holmes and the Pearl of Death, (laughs) uh, which came out in September of 1944. Now, of course, we've heard of uh, a black pearl of the Borgias in the original stories in uh, The Adventure of the Six Napoleons. Uh, Mm. And now you've got uh, the same kind of thing happening, Holmes stopping the theft of the Borgia pearl by uh, by a thief who's in the employment of a master criminal
2: your fingers have now closed on a matter of 50,000 pounds
0: What? <laughs>
2: can't be real real as death old fellow the blood of 20 men upon it down through the centuries where'd you get it from a charming young lady named drake elias yvette Dejoux, elias lisa vanini never heard of her No, nor of giles conover either i fancy Well, I can't say that I have. That's the incredible thing about it, Watson. This man pervades Europe like a plague. Yet no one has heard of him. That's what puts him on the pinnacle in the records of crime. What's he do? Everything and nothing. In his whole diabolical career, the police have never been able to pin anything on him. And yet, show me crime without motive, robbery without a clue, murder without a trace, and I'll show you...
0: Professor Moriarty? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Giles Conover. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that uh, as as their plot devices, whether it's the Spider Woman or uh, Miles Conover, that um, uh, it, it it it's always a Moriarty stand-in, some kind of mastermind who's uh, pulling the strings behind everything. Uh, it just, you know, I think they 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 found a formula and they ran with it. They just changed the plots, changed the name uh, from time to time.
3: Um, well, it works, you know. You've got a a superhero, as you have pointed out, as we've pointed out in the past, in mm-hmm. Holmes, and he needs uh, a worthy opponent.
0: That is true, and you know, worthy opponents also come with henchmen. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned the henchmen. In this case, it was the Creeper, Ooh. the Creeper uh played by Rondo Hatton who uh had acromegaly so he looked even creepier than a creeper might normally look um and and he actually uh went on uh, to uh, have his own series of films as the creeper uh joining uh Dracula, Frankenstein, the Phantom, you know, in the Universal Hall of Monsters as it were uh mm-hmm. before he died prematurely in 19 19-
3: 46. Yeah, so sad. He was uh, a sports writer who'd grown up in Florida, and he had been voted the handsomest boy in his class. Wow. (laughs) At high school in Tampa, Florida. And then at 20, he developed this disease, which is a disorder of the pituitary gland. And uh, he did manage to have quite a career, a short-lived career, as you say, in films.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we move on from horror to fear, Uh, as uh, The House of Fear was released in 1945, and this one was based on The Five Orange Pips. Uh, This this marks Nigel Bruce's 50th film in Hollywood. And, of course, we've got uh, The Good Comrades, which is a a group of men living remotely in a, a Scottish manse named Dreercliff House. And they're being murdered. They're being picked off one by one, uh, and, and they're tipped off as to who's going to be killed next by the receipt of an envelope containing five orange pips.
2: The events I'm about to relate began a fortnight ago in a grim old house perched high on a cliff on the west coast of Scotland. This singular structure is known as Dreercliffe House. Gathered there for dinner were the seven members of a most extraordinary club called the Good Comrades.
0: <laughs> a good comrade, isn't that what they call uh, the the White House administration? <laughs> <laughs> All for one, and one for the. Exits. I kid, yeah. I kid. Um, but yeah, again, th- th- this uh, you know gothic uh, horror type uh, f- filled film uh, that really seemed to be doing the trick in the mid forties uh, at Universal. Um, and it was double billed. It was released as a double bill with The Mummy's Curse. Mm. Which, when you think about it, is uh, pretty interesting because The Mummy had its origins with a Conan Doyle story uh, years prior. Uh, Lot 249. Yes, that's right. So, a lot of fun there. So, then we move on to the 11th outing. Uh, you know, remember, there are only 14 films here, folks. We're at 11, so, Mm-mm. you know, if you need to pause and use the restroom now, you go right ahead. We'll understand, <laughs> um, but we'll keep going. There will be no intermission here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Um, but this brings us to The Woman in Green. Ah, uh, good one. Yeah, so we, we've experienced uh, elements of... Uh, the empty house or, or uh, the final problem in an earlier film this says elements of the empty house uh, thrown in. And this, of course, is that that film where Watson is famously hypnotized. And uh, we, of course, see the return of none other than Professor Moriarty, this time uh, by our friend Henry Daniel. Oh, yeah. The best he was he's um he's been described as uh, a a moriarty who uh is is weary and suave and almost as if he couldn't be bothered by you know this this evil doing business um but he had the power to electrify those uh, in his presence just by just a a mere glance And uh, Rathbone himself, in his autobiography, said there were other Moriarty's, but none so delectably dangerous as that of Henry Daniel. And there's one uh, lovely thing that happens here. Of course, this
3: particular picture draws from uh, the adventure of the empty house and it also draws from the Ripper murders mm. uh, because the whole premise here is that, is that women are being murdered and each one bizarrely is having a finger removed <laughs> but the last thing it draws from is the uh, meeting between Moriarty yes. and Holmes which is, which is how we first have this great scene with Henry Daniel
1: Oh, Professor Moriarty not that I wish to appear inquisitive, but to what am I indebted for the pleasure of this visit? Scotland Yard would be interested. It's very convenient for me to have Scotland Yard think that I'm still dead in Montevideo. to never dreamed of fooling you. Thank you. The thought occurs to me, Mr. Holmes, that there are some advantages in living within the law. You are very comfortably fixed here, aren't you? As I get on in life, the little comforts appeal to me more and more. Oh, I beg your pardon. Won't you sit down? Thank you. And now, Professor Moriarty, what can I do for you? Everything that I have to say to you has already crossed your mind. My answer has no doubt crossed yours. That's final. What do you think? I shall not rest until you are hanged for the finger murders. You have no proof, you know. No, not a shred. But I have you... I could turn you over to the police here and now. You could. If you did, you'd never see Dr. Watson again. Oh, the telephone call. Quite. I rather assumed you had taken some such precaution. Or I should have snatched up a revolver and indulged in a fit of heroics when you came in. Very smart, aren't you? Not smart enough. Or I should have anticipated you. But any harm comes to Dr. Watson, I shall seek you out. I shall not rest until I find you, and when I do... No harm will come to Dr. Watson this time. But I can't answer for the future. Mr. Holmes, I should strongly advise you to drop this case. Don't be silly. Think it over. We've had many encounters in the past. You hope to place me on the gallows. I tell you, I shall never stand up on the gallows. But... If you are instrumental in any way in bringing about my destruction, you will not be alive to enjoy your satisfaction. And we shall walk together through the gates of eternity hand in hand. What a charming picture that would make. Yes, wouldn't it? I really think it might be worth it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, that, I mean, just the the playoff between the two. Even though it was updated for uh, for the movie here, it's that classic scene between Holmes and Moriarty where you've got these two brains uh, you know, the meeting of the, of the minds, as it were, uh, mm. just, it's, it's wonderful to see it and played so well, uh, by, by both Rathbone and Danielle. Mm. So, well, we move into the fall of 1945 and we find Rathbone and Bruce preparing for the fifth season of their radio show, The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And then by the end of October, we've got the twelfth. In their movie series together, the pursuit—it's pursuit to Algiers, uh, where they're preparing for a holiday on Scotland, and they—they um, uh, they get on board uh, a, a, a ship, obviously bound for Algiers. So, I'm not as as familiar with this one uh, as I am with some of the others, Bert. I can't say that this was one of the ones that has ranked high in. Uh, very many folks' uh, estimation.
3: Well, no, but there's some charming things in it. Um, you know, the basic idea here is that uh, there's this a very mysterious opening where they're sort of directed to this fish and chip shop or this pub and they find out that <laughs> they've got to intercede to protect the king of some small European country and then they wind up on the... Uh, the ship, but it 's not you know Holmes hasn 't made the ship, and Watson hears that holmes 's plane has crashed uh, so he so he 's uh, you know deeply deeply discouraged, and then it turns out you know that the king is really on board, etc et etc cetera, et cetera. but there 's a couple of lovely things here one is where there 's a scene with Nigel Bruce at one of the dinners in the ship where he 's attempting to recount the case of the giant rat of Sumatra, hmm. and he starts by by explaining this bit of action using, I think, a stick of celery as Holmes (laughs) and a salt shaker as himself. And this whole scene goes on, you know, nothing happens. They come to a brick wall, and he's got to move the celery and the salt shaker back. And there's an- another lovely scene where he gets to sing, uh, which I think is really Nigel Bruce's voice. He gets to sing, Flow Gently, Sweet Afton. But in terms of uh, great dramatic moments and things that are really central to Sherlock Holmes, I think it's safe to say there aren't very many here at all.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and I would side with uh, our friend and fellow Baker Street irregular David Stewart Davies. Who in Holmes of the movies said, uh, Pursuit to Algiers showed a decided decline in inventiveness and proved to be the weakest of the series. <laughs> so we'll see, but then we are on to, uh, another, uh, another one that, 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 that finds our heroes, uh, trapped aboard a transportation vessel. This time not a ship, but a train. And that is Terror by Night. Uh, where they're on the Scottish Express and the Star of Rhodesia, uh, Priceless Diamond, uh, has been stolen from one of the passengers and the villain. Of course, we've moved on from Moriarty as Henry Daniel fell to his death in, uh, in, in, in the previous film or, or two, two films previous in, um, uh, Woman in Green. Woman in Green, that's right. Uh, and instead we have Colonel Sebastian Moran making an appearance here, and his air gun that is true his air pistol his air it pistol yeah. Here, yeah. it was a uh,
3: <laughs> with the great prop air guns apparently with just a <laughs> couple of squeezes on the plunger you
0: can, you, <laughs> yeah.
3: you can kill somebody pretty easily
0: it's like my kid's nerf gun in that yeah case. it looks like a looks like a squirt gun yeah. Uh, yeah so but uh you know it was a a fun story again a good good train mystery for those who like uh, murder on the orient express and the like
3: well you've got sebastian moran you've got an air pistol and you also have sort of a tip of the hat to lady Frances carfax in that somebody is concealed in a coffin Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there you are and you've got a lovely little comic bit by dennis hoey and of course gerald hamer is in here as a Another little wonderful comic bit is somebody who's absconded from a hotel with a teapot.
0: Yeah, I remember that. So, oh, the Scotland Yards is on our case, yes. alright, <clears I'll throat> i go quietly. Yeah. Indeed. So, um at this point, this is in 1946, uh, Universal, uh, said to Rathbone, um we, we have more plans for the series, we, we'd like to, uh, shoot four more films, uh, throughout 46. Right, so it, it, that, that was uh, kind of upping the cadence that the Conan Doyle brothers expected. Um, and again, Rathbone was thinking about uh, the typecasting. And at that point, he just decided, you know what, I'm, I'm out. I, I, I can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And it, that, in that case, it meant that there was only one more film that Rathbone and Bruce and Roy William Neal would make uh, together as Holmes and Watson and their director. And that film, of course, is... Dressed to Kill. Ah, originally entitled Prelude to Murder. Mm. I, I and it's a, it's a lovely picture because,
3: it, well, a lot of things to enjoy here. It's got the device, of the music boxes, yes. so that the secret message has been divided uh, across a series of musical boxes. And you have that lovely little tune. But you also have the beautiful Patricia Morrison... Mm. Who turns up in the role of Hilda Courtney? So she is the, the Spider Woman or the Moriarty character in this particular picture, and uh, she's the chief villainess here. And she does a lovely job. She appears in disguise in different characters. She must have had a grand time doing.
0: It. Yeah, yeah. And and do you know Patricia Morrison as of this recording is still with us? She's still alive. She. She's a 100- hundred. A hundred years old. Hundred years old right. now. Yeah, and can you believe it? I could not get her to come on the show. <laughs> well, I think she's skiing, isn't she? She's like, she's just too busy. I, I can imagine. Here she's she's in demand. I mean, how many centenarians are are there uh, at this point? Uh, God she bless. Has her. a date with Willard Scott somewhere. Um, God bless. Well, th- this film, of course, was released uh, in the middle of... Uh, actually, the 7th of June, 1946. So, just 71 years ago this week. Mm. Um, and, and and that was it. But b- before we leave this particular film, I do want to point out two instances of... Um, you know, more of the bubis Britannicus from uh, Watson. And the first... I think is is probably uh, an unnecessary bit of sarcasm uh, from Rathbone's Holmes, but it's also an unnecessary bit of uh, Captain Obvious from Nigel Bruce.
1: I say, Holmes? What? Well, it's morning. Allow me to congratulate you on a brilliant bit of deduction.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just a little too harsh. But then, you know, you can understand why Holmes would be maybe at the end of his patience with Watson when he's greeted with this kind of activity.
2: Oh, darling, you you mustn't cry anymore. Uh, Cheer up. Would you
1: you like to hear old uncle make a noise like a duck? Sorry?
0: Sorry? I, I, I do have to fault Roy William Neal on one thing. At that point in the scene, I would have made the girl bawl her eyes out <laughs> 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 having to deal with that.
3: Oh, but um, how lovely. Who knew Nigel Bruce could do a duck? You know, that
0: oh, is... Ma- uh, many people. It was it was one of his favorite things to do on set. That's great. About that. Oh, but but that's really where we reached the end of the collaboration. Um, Rathbone later in his autobiography recalled that Uh, "'Sir Arthur felt at one time that he had created a sort of Frankenstein that he could not escape from, "'and so he decided to kill Mr. Sherlock Holmes at the Reichenbach Falls and to be done with him. "'Public outrage at this callous murder of Mr. Holmes by Sir Arthur was so great "'that Sir Arthur was literally forced to bring him back from the dead and continue the adventures. "'I frankly admit that in 1946 I was placed in a somewhat similar predicament, "'but I could not kill Mr. Holmes.' so I decided to run away from him. However, to all intents and purposes, I might as well have just killed him. My friends excoriated me for my dastardly behavior, and for a while, my long-time friendship with Nigel Bruce suffered severe and recurring shocks. And that is true. You know, uh, Bruce felt as if his friend abandoned him and kind of left him swinging in the breeze. And, And, you know, as far as the universal contract went, you know, Bruce was looking forward to... Uh, those those three other films that would have kept him employed throughout the year.
3: Yeah, and the whole thing was was really rather pointless because seven years later, uh, you know, Rathbone found at <laughs> his particular age and with the body of work as Holmes behind him that other roles were difficult, although he did have, uh, I think, at least one success in a longish-running stage play. But he was back in 1953 with his wife, Weeders, Uh, play about Sherlock Holmes, which was to open at the New Century Theater in New York with Thomas Gomez, who we saw as the villain Meade in that very first picture, The Voice of Terror, The Saboteur Meade. Thomas Gomez uh, played Moriarty, and uh, Rathbone dialed up Nigel Bruce in the hopes that he would accept the role of Watson. But sadly, Nigel Bruce... um, was not well and uh, a few weeks before that play was to open and it did not last very long Nigel Bruce passed away of a heart attack he was only 58 years old mm-hmm.
0: and you know the uh, I, I want to touch on the irony of uh, of uh, Weta Rathbone's play Sherlock Holmes which by the way was uh, the subject of a Baker Street Journal Christmas annual if I am not yes. mistaken um in 2007, is that right?
3: Mm, yeah, the 2007
0: Christmas annual. Um, it's it's not available for sale anymore. You can probably find it on eBay or uh, ABE Books or something like that. Um, but Weta is the one who initially pressured Basil to drop out of the movie series. And <laughs> she wrote the play that he could return to. And she was the one who was constantly spending his money just as quickly as he earned it. So it was an interesting uh, relationship happening there. Um, so, if, yeah, you've got, unfortunately, uh, this play not working out. It, it ran for rehearsals in Boston and then closed after only three performances in New York, uh, followed fairly quickly by Nigel Bruce's death. But uh as the film relationship wrapped up in nineteen forty-six, uh Rathbone also decided to exit the radio program. Uh and the uh NBC found uh, a new sponsor, Right, so Petri Wine was out. It's now Kremel Hair Tonic. Uh and Nigel Bruce was given top billing, and then the actor Tom Conway uh was brought to the scene. He actually arrived in Hollywood with his brother. Whom you might know, one yes. George Sanders. Mm. Oh, great film villain right there. Um, but what was really interesting about the choice of Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes was he sounded almost exactly like Basil Rathbone. It's uncanny.
1: Oh, Mr. Holmes, at last, thank heaven. I beg your pardon. You father. must save him. He didn't do it. I know he didn't. And they'll hang him. They'll hang him. No one in the world but you can help him now. Now, my dear madam, you must control yourself. I can't possibly help you until I know your problem. Oh, you... You must excuse me. Here, 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 my dear. You, you drink this. It'll... It'll make you feel better. Oh, thank you. I've been waiting for you, Mr. Holmes. Praying for your return for days. You left no forwarding address. I know. Dr. Watson and I had promised ourselves a real holiday. I'm Edith Fairmont. Evidently, that name means nothing to you. You haven't seen the newspapers. No, not for four weeks, thank him. Compose yourself, madam, and tell us what has brought you here. And remember that we know nothing beyond the obvious facts that you are in great distress and uh, from your apparel recently widowed.
0: That's really (laughs) amazingly close, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is very close. And I think
3: uh, Tom Conway also picked up from his brother, George Saunders, on The Saint on the radio. I think he popped in there. But it is... is, um, um, very close, and a lot of what gives it that verisimilitude of Rathbone is, of course, you have Nigel Bruce. So you're, you know, you're really looking for uh, for Rathbone there. So I think, yeah, it's remarkable.
0: Yes. Well, the entire series was remarkable, and it still holds a place dear in many Sherlockians' hearts, and serves as again a a place of uh, entry for a number of people who discover Sherlock Holmes. So the work was. Uh, was amazing at its uh, for its time, and uh, still withstands the test of time.
3: And we're lucky to have it. You know the the Universal films. I didn't never realize this were uh, well not lost, but in, in severely poor condition, and were all restored some years ago mm. by the uh, the film is it, it's a UC Berkeley film. Oh, the uh, Film
0: Institute. Is film that, Institute. Uh, yeah, oh. that's wonderful. So we still have them. We do. Thank goodness. If you'd like a living link to the times of Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, look no further than the Baker Street Journal. Since 1946, the final year of the collaboration between the two actors, the BSJ has been packing its pages with news, commentary, and analysis about the original stories and every manifestation of the great detective. Films, television, books, magazines, the Internet, video games, and more. Four times a year, plus a bonus Christmas annual, means that you'll never tire of playing the game. It's been more than 70 years since the duo last graced the screen together, and more than 70 years that this torrent of Sherlockian scholarship has been flowing. And while one might think that it would slow to a trickle in 2017, the fact is that the waters of creativity are roaring like a veritable Reichenbach Falls. Be sure that you partake of this long-standing tradition as we honor Rathbone and Bruce, You, too, can honor their memory and the memory of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson by going to BakerStreetJournal.com and getting a subscription today. Well, that seems to do just about as much damage as we can with all of our content here. Um, We did not go over this at the beginning of the show, and it's worth noting now um, if you would like to support our show, if what you've just heard is at all valuable to you, uh, you know, it, the reason it took us 122 episodes to get to this point is that the clip gathering, the research, uh, just, you know, having the time to put all this together and to do all of the work necessary behind the scenes, it takes some uh, level of effort. And and by the way, we did wait until episode 122 but if you actually reverse those numbers that's 221 so it's entirely appropriate that we're here seems backwards that it took us so long to get to rathbone and yet 122 backwards is 221 but if that if 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 you appreciate what we've done here won't you consider supporting our show we'll give you a couple of different options there are on on iHearOfSherlock.com, there are two buttons in the upper right-hand corner there. You can press either one of them and either become a recurring sponsor through Patreon, which means that each time we publish an episode, we we will uh, send you an invoice, as it were. So you pay per episode. Or if you'd simply like to make a one-time donation, PayPal works just as well, too. You can click on that button, or you can just go to PayPal.me slash ihose and make a donation that way. And, of course, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get your comments, get your feedback, get your thoughts on how we can continue to improve the show. You can reach us uh, by email at comment at ihearofsherlock.com. You can reach us on any of the social platforms where hear of Sherlock in all of those. You can leave us a comment right on the show notes for this page, which are available at iHose.co slash ihoes122. And I think there is still one of those non-Alexander Graham Bell invented telephones involved, too, isn't there?
3: Oh, sure. Yes. Put your finger in that rotary dial and do 774-221-READ. That's seven seven four two two one seven three two three. 221 7323 We want to hear your voice. We know what we sound like. We <laughs> want to hear you.
0: There you go. Well, thank you for staying with us for this extra-long, extra-special episode until next time, here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, I'm Scott Monty, and I'm Still Bert Walder. <laughs> the, the games of
3: foot. You know, I'm
1: afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I am neglecting business of importance which awaits me elsewhere.
0: Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes.
2: Goodbye and
1: good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.